Hello everyone. Welcome back to the second edition of Or Parish. I am one of your hosts, Moya Bailey. And I am Unsung Kim. And we are here today to talk about a very interesting uh, topic given our current position as assistant professors on the tenure track, hoping to get tenure, and at the same time, very critical <laughs> of our position in the academy. Yes. So I we very much hope that you enjoyed our podcast on euphoria <laughs> and uh, will sort of celebrate this weed not detour, but this kind of ongoing geography of um, this podcast that we have where we'll explore everything from pop culture to the issues and topics that we grapple with on a daily basis. And the thing that we grapple with pretty consistently is academia, as we both have jobs within the academy. And trying to figure out our relationship to those jobs. And uh, for a bit of history to get us to our current moment, we uh, are excited about a new call from colleagues who are asking for a new way of imagining our relationship to the academy. And they're calling for something called abolitionist university studies. So in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of people who have been critical of the university. So there's been university studies, but now uh, these folks are asking us to consider what would be an abolitionist approach to university studies and how does that change our orientation to our job and to our expectations about how we relate to the academy. And for those who are already familiar with um, abolition, sort of the, the ongoing movement for particularly prison abolition, this might be something that you're already familiar with or something that is completely strange and new. Um, and we just wanted to talk about kind of both of the contours of both uh, what it means for someone who has been thinking about or thinking with uh, abolitionist framework and everything that they do in their political organizing and their research and so forth. Um, but also for those who are interested in grappling with what this might mean. Absolutely. So one way we thought we'd start this conversation is with a discussion of how we came into the academy. So I can say I actually grew up on a college campus. My dad is a law professor, retired now. My mom was an academic librarian, also retired now. So I grew up with uh, the university very much a part of my life. I thought I was gonna go to medical school and not go uh, on to be an academic but I fell in love with women's studies in undergrad at Spelman College and just had a wonderful awakening around critical questions that theory could help us answer. And that really sparked my interest in social justice and questions of how people are treated both in the academy and without. And from there, in women's studies, that's also been my focus on who is marginalized, how are we able to better support them, and what are the systems to do that? And of course, having been in the academy now for however long it's been, uh, it becomes clear to me and to all of us really that the system is not designed for us I don't know that there's any amount of repair that can be done to make the academy uh, a space that is ultimately useful for our liberation. So then it becomes what is an abolitionist framework through which to understand my future relationship to this place. Right. Uh, I had no idea you wanted to go to med school. Was yeah. This, like, was this a very... Is this something that you thought about when you were very young and then in college it shifted? Because I know that you now work in disability studies and other sort of um, quest critical questions around 
health in particular? Yes. So I applied to medical school, went and visited a medical school, and I had a good friend who was like, why don't you just take the GRE too? And I did. And really, it was at the last minute that I said, actually, I'm going to go to grad school instead of medical school. Wow. Yeah. And my idea was definitely that I, my interest in medicine was one of wanting to have doctors that were different from the doctors that I had Mm -hmm. had growing up. So already, even as a teen, understanding the way that race and gender impacted my experiences with doctors in a mostly white uh, suburban area. And I was like, I don't want anyone else to have to deal with a doctor like I had. But that was a very limited sort of brain, at least in my thinking. Uh I wanted to then actually figure out, well, what is it about medical education that shifts and makes doctors behave this way or doesn't shift them so that they end up enacting all of the things that we know people enact in our society. Right. And so something to sort of perhaps clarify from the beginning, an abolitionist framework uh, would be the call to uh, abolish the, the framework or the structure in place. So prison abolition would be the end of prisons. Uh, university abolition would be the end of universities as we understand it. And then something that Moya touched on versus like a recuperative framework, like trying to figure out how to uh, resolve or resituate the framework for a better ends or a better means. Um, and I, where I'm in agreement that I don't, I don't really know about recuperative gestures. I understand why people want to make them initially. I sometimes even sympathize with the desire to sort of try to figure out how to mend something, but I also feel very critical of those approaches at times because it seems a little ahistorical and perhaps not always coming from those who are most affected, but coming from people who have a lot to lose if the systems were actually abolished. Absolutely. So I want to hear a little bit about how you are thinking about abolition as it relates to your own journey into the academy. Yes. So my, I always think of my existence in the academy as just kind of almost um, really, I I mean, I didn't mean to be in the academy. (laughs) I should just start there. I, uh, my parent, my, my dad is a pastor. He uh, is now uh, affiliated with a a strange kind of non-denominational church in Korea that works mostly with undocumented immigrants um, and migrants. So that's where he is now. But we immigrated to the U.S. for uh, for him to work in the church. And I slowly found my way into uh, literature, really, as, as like someone who was very young. And, and then over time, it was various people that I met everyone from high school teachers to university teachers, who just kind of encouraged me to continue writing. And then when I was an undergrad in Seattle, Chandan Reddy, uh, who still teaches at the University of Washington, essentially told me that I could continue doing this thing called reading and researching and writing. And I didn't know that this was a thing. So I think a lot about how mentorship can really transform someone and how much it matters. And I should also clarify that it was really Chandan's class on Black Marxism that transformed how I thought about the field, but also what it really was that something like um, critical writing can do. So it's strange because I do think that I had quite uh, a remarkable experience as a student, um, but I don't think that this is you. This is the normative experience, and I think this is something that uh, people that I speak to who are who romanticize the university. It's often that they had incredibly exceptional experiences with the academy, with various professors, because um, this is, it's actually like what I received was a lot of uncompensated racialized and gendered labor. People really taking me aside and 
showing me things and, and, and kind of performing like endless emotional labor to help me understand so that I could be the scholar that I am today. So, yeah. I relate to you that, I relate to you <laughs> on that so much and that being at Spelman and being with faculty who had made a choice to be at an HBCU when mm-hmm. I could be somewhere else. Um, and thinking about the sacrifice that that meant in terms of their own scholarship, because there's a lot of teaching that is required, and also the sacrifice in terms of pay and adequate compensation. Uh, I feel that so much that these were people who made a choice, and I'm so grateful that they did, because they really opened me up to a possibility that I hadn't considered. and. That, I think, is one of the beauties of the Academy, one of the things that we like about it. But as you note, our experiences are unusual, and they are not the experience that most people have. Right. And additionally, I think the Academy has shifted, even in the time since we have gotten our PhDs and have started on the tenure track. And... For me, it's also a question about how we want to live in the world, especially in this moment of late capitalism. Right. And I should also say that uh, even if our experiences were not exceptional, even if the system were able to restructure itself so that everyone was able to have this like incredibly like transformative and loving experience. I also think it's important to understand that for my field, literary studies and one could even argue Western art history was uh, predicated on the rise of British colonialism and invented to to further advance the notion of, of English being a, a supreme form, a literary form, a supreme artistic form. So it went hand in hand with British colonialism. So if you... There's no way to sort of recruit this field. I think that there's no way that that this field can be eventually um, bettered. I think that we have to sort of think about the roots. And Angela Davis says that like radical means you pull by the roots. So you pull and then, and you kind of start from there. Yes. Oh, that's such a good point. Because when I think of my field, which is women's gender and sexuality studies, Africana studies, these were born of student movements and student Mm. protests and students of color and women saying, actually, you know what? We want to learn about ourselves. It doesn't make sense for me to be in this uh, biology class and for me not to know about women biologists who made a difference and an impact in the field. Similarly, I'm learning all of this literature in a canon but I don't see myself reflected here. So student activism in the late 60s and 70s really set the pace and the course for my two two fields. And yet we can see the way that the academy is in a process of diluting the power of these politically informed uh, areas of study. I think the goal initially for students was to see how can we use the tools of the academy and apply them to the world that we want to create. And Mm -hmm. I think the academy is so good at getting people invested in it Mm -hmm. and creating work that, to me, amounts to, like, you know, moving the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know. We end up spending a lot of time working on and talking to each other Mm -hmm. in the closed space of the academy and it doesn't actually reach or get to the people who actually fostered and really fomented the movement to make my particular fields uh disciplines yeah i mean it reminds me of rod ferguson and the reorder of uh, the reorder of things where he talks about how ethnic studies black studies women's studies really came out of activism and at the same time it was almost like the university would rather accept the studies as departments rather than as um, rather than accept the demands by the students of institutional and infrastructural change. 
Absolutely. So you can do that women's study stuff over there. <laughs> We're actually going to leave the field of biology alone. Right, right. You can do that black studies of, over there. We're going to leave the canon as it is. Yes. Although we might invite Toni Morrison to the party wow. at a later date. But all of this uh, really is a reflection of just the power of an institution to maintain itself. And I think that's one of the things that's most fascinating to me mm -hmm. about uh, doing work inside an institution is that it's so good at reconstituting itself and keeping itself going yes. and keeping us focused on other things when we could actually be doing something that would shift our attention away from it completely. Yeah. So then let me ask you sort of some things so that the well, our conversation can be clear for those who are not as familiar. How are you defining um, the university and the stakes of being quote unquote included or excluded? And then what does it mean for you to critique inside of it? Um, and how do you see the tensions of the inside versus outside? So something Barbara Ransby said once, which I just really hold close to my heart, Barbara Barbara Ransby is a professor at University of Illinois, Chicago, and a historian. She said that you should think about the academy as a job. And, you know, thinking about it as a job uh, where you sometimes get to do the things that you find valuable. But if you think about it as a job, then you won't get caught up in an expectation for it to be something that it is not. And so that has really stuck with me. And in terms of my activism, I don't really think that there's honestly much difference from trying to unionize at a university and trying to unionize at Amazon. They're, the way that corporations operate, institutions operate, is that they want to maintain themselves and they aren't interested in things that actually disrupt that process. So for me, it's about learning how to leverage the resources of the institution towards the projects that I'm really passionate about and also uh, figure out ways to divest as much as possible from the institution itself mm -hmm. and not really holding on to it as a, as a source of identity or as uh, a place of refuge, which it has not been that to me, mm -hmm. uh, but I do love the people that I've met here. And I do think that in terms of surviving um, the last 60 harvests, you know. <laughs> is it 59 now? Oh, is I think it's still 60. I think you're right. So these last 59 harvests that it is, uh, it's possible that I am thinking through this as a, place to from which to launch something else should the time <laughs> present itself yeah I mean I ask this question because I think it's really important to set up how one does not have to identify or protect institutions because I find that there's a lot of surprise from students and sometimes even faculty that one would actively be engaged in a set of serious critiques at one's employee, like uh, where one works or or uh, the institution that one's affiliated with. Like often the comment when there are worker strikes or so forth, the, the attitude is like, well, you can quit. And I think that that actually does not understand how critique occurs, right? So like often if you are so removed from the institution or you're so removed from the space, what is your, why, why would you invest time in critiquing it? Why would you want to critique it? Why would you have a different vision for it? I mean, would, would you have a different vision for it? And I think that there's a deep misunderstanding that um, critique and abolition doesn't come because you're unaffected by it. it. It comes because you're so affected by it and you're so immersed in it. And that it does seem like, I understand that it is, it seems like a contradiction that we would all be involved in wage labor and also be very critical of it. But actually, isn't that what capitalism is about? You know, isn't that what Father Marx kind of pointed out from the beginning that this is these are these are the contradictions that play out in capitalism? Absolutely. 
And it's a question too for me about where we spend our energy and where we spend our time. And that to me is another call of abolition, which is to say, um, perhaps this isn't where we should spend a lot of our energy. Perhaps this is not the realm through which uh, we get the changes that we want to see. So thinking about prison abolition, there's no there there in terms of reforming, recuperating prisons. That doesn't actually get us closer to the society that we want. And the way that universities operate now does not get us closer to the vision of the world or society that we want. Right. Especially because there is so much investment, financial investment that universities have in the prison industrial complex. So I think that that's something else to really think about. Universities as financial enterprise. Uh, enterprises and how interconnected those institutions are. Yes. And I think this is another place where it's important to note all of the different stakes and tendrils that a university has. So definitely the point of an institution uh, would be faculty, students, staff. Those are people that we think about a lot. But breaking that down further, There's a difference between the staff of the library and the staff that works in the dining halls and their efforts to unionize and how much they're paid and all of that or how their labor is contracted out. Similarly, there's a difference between students who are on athletics scholarships at Big Ten universities where so much of their, as we know, their athletic labor drives a huge source of money Mm -hmm. and uh, for the institution. And those students are not necessarily getting the kind of education that one would imagine they should or any kind of monetary compensation really any monetary compensation, right? Absolutely. Those are racialized conversations for sure. Absolutely. Oh, you were going to say something? Oh, just that all of those tendrils end up impacting the way we think about abolition and who needs to be a part of the conversation and what we want for uh, a different kind of relationship to education and its actual purpose. I think once you start to look at that, you can very quickly see that universities are not actually in the business of education or in the business of uh, really trying to foster a society in which people have access to information that is useful for creating a different world. The university as an institution is very interested in preserving things exactly as they are. And our critique is one of the ways that we can perhaps make a dent in that uh, that mission. Right. And I think that it's like very important to acknowledge that that there's some, there's like anxiety around abolition because of the way that hegemony operates. So I think it's a reality that having a college degree from specific universities feel very important. I, I sense the anxiety all the time when I meet younger people uh, that the job prospects seem very strange and dwindling and It just seems like unpaid internships is how so many industries have normalized themselves. So I think for perhaps even younger people to really imagine the the abolition of the system is really uh, it's it's not just calling for just the abolition of universities. And they should be clear that people who have worked within this framework ask for the abolition of societies that have constructed all of these systems. So a society as um, Fred Moten and Harvey describe as like the system that can construct, that supports chattel slavery, like everything that's connected to that system um, has to be really abolished. And we have to sort of think about that within that framework. That doesn't mean that if this is something that you're working through for the first time, or even if you're continuing to work through it, that you always 
have an easy affective relationship with it and that you're going to be sort of judged and like morally tested for how well you do. Like, I guess like, I think that that tension is really important to tease out because I find that oftentimes people believe that or go about it as if this is an individualized kind of endeavor. Like, this doesn't mean one individual has to do this. We have to sort of really think about this collectively so that it can be collectively approached. And one of the ways that we do that collective approach is by gathering together. So uh, part of this conversation is born out of the abolitionist university studies conference that's coming up and a groundswell of effort up by people who are in the academy and affected by it to shift our relationship to it. And with that said, I mean, I think part of the reason we came up with this podcast is trying to address that question. What is our relationship to the academy and the explicit and implicit demand that we publish or perish? You right. That we write and uh, do the work that the academy requires, often at the expense of our health. I mean, one of the things I wanted to make sure we discussed was the death of lots of women of color because of the uh, gargantuan amount of work and uh, expectations regarding our labor in the institution. And that happens at all levels, but one of the most recent ones that I think is particularly egregious is the adjunctification of the university. So instead of paying tenure track faculty, institutions have moved towards paying graduate students and adjuncts, which means that they can pay for their labor for teaching classes, but not have the added role of supplying their healthcare or any of the other benefits that tenured faculty have access to. And there was a recent case that was discussed in the New York Times about a black woman who was an adjunct professor who died really because she didn't have access to healthcare mm -hmm. and was trying to negotiate adjunct positions at three institutions wow. in the New York area and traveling between them and had essentially a very bad and persistent um, condition with asthma and then pneumonia and then which she ultimately succumbed to and that's what happens when we are in this precarious business of doing the work of the academy which doesn't necessarily care about us at all right I mean I think Nick Mitchell has a blog post where he writes about how Hunter College was not supportive of Audre Lorde taking unpaid leave for her health when she was diagnosed with cancer. So I think that the, there's like a historical continuum and consistency to how both the university life literally affects your body and how institutions have not responded um, to particularly black faculty when it comes to these issues. Yes, and that also reminds me of the research that we do, which is a huge part of our job, but then doesn't get incorporated into the way that these institutions run. Right. So when we have research that shows that uh, faculty of color, women faculty, end up doing a lot of the service labor that quote-unquote does not count for tenure mm. and they are less likely to advance or advance as quickly as their white male counterparts. That hasn't necessarily changed any of the structural uh, parts of the pursuit of tenure. Additionally, when it's clear that all of the ways that our society is set up don't actually aid in humans' health and well-being, which we have discovered through all of our different uh, venues in the academy, study after study, it has not, again, meant a change in the way that our society operates. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I really like about the possibility of abolition in university studies 
is to remind people that we have the information, but there is a vested interest on the part of the institution not to make changes. Yes. So it's so important to talk about how our research is not only theoretical, though there is a theory, but that it's praxis and that there's material stakes in really thinking about uh, what would be the implementation of it, which um, I was going to say something, but I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so I, I think about this whenever I approach kind of the university setting that so much of the research that I do is about kind of institutional and archival decision making. So how museums collect certain things, how archives end up purchasing certain like poetry manuscripts and how the in, there's like an institutional record for how this is. The process is just uh basically white supremacy, right? Like over like how many hundreds of years. And that oftentimes even when non-white artists and poets enter the quote unquote permanent archive of the museum or the um, like poetry manuscript landscape that it's the, the entrance is almost a, a place of being held hostage because it doesn't mean that you're in the finding aid in the right way or that you're exhibited. So um, there's sort of, Susan Kahn has this, uh, she did this research where she shows that Jacob Lawrence's migration series, after it was acquired by the MoMA, it was exhibited in its entirety like four times in 60 years. So I think that these are really important things to think about that the way that it's set up is, um, is that it's a repository of research rather than a space that really tests out different research that so many of us and our colleagues do, which, I remember the thing I was going to say, which is that it. I think that something that I would really like to stress in both my teaching and my writing, though I understand that, and I do not mean this as an individual endeavor, is that I want the humanities and I want everything to do with research to really push against this notion that we just have to generate more money or we just have to generate more stuff. And and. I mean this like quite literally. I want to figure if if what I'm what if what I do is I study narratives and I study how narratives become developed and then normalized and, and consumed into our feelings after hundreds of years, I, I wanna know what can we do to shift the conversation so that it isn't just you go one goes to the university and the best the, the biggest thing that one can do is then come up with an app idea that then will create lots of money for a very small subset of the population that already has money and then possibly uh, further exploit the people who are already being exploited, which to me does not seem like invention. It seems like more displacement. Absolutely. And that actually has me uh, thinking about something else we've talked about before offline, which is the question of how do you adjudicate what your praxis is and how do we make decisions around our contradictions? Yeah. So something that came up in class today was students wanting to think through uh, how we purchase clothes mm. and just that there is an endless supply of clothing being created, clothing that no one like there's more clothes than there are people on the planet <laughs> and the idea that things go out of fashion and you know what is our ethical commitment to uh creating a world in which the things we use aren't just wasted etc cetera, etc cetera. and so it's gotten me thinking too about how we want to leverage our power in an institution and how are we deciding what are the things that are most important or have the greatest impact on uh, the way that we relate to uh, the institution, but also to our students? Right. What do we owe them in terms of modeling an abolitionist praxis yeah. when it comes to these questions? Because I have to say, you're a very fashionable person. <laughs> I like to think that I'm a fashionable person. 
And so it really had a, I really had a moment, like, what is my abolitionist praxis around how I show up in the classroom in terms of what I wear, but also not getting to the point of having a relationship that is only about my consumption, right? Because it's bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, because this gets tricky because I often find that when students interact with uh, quote-unquote leftist, radical, abolitionist framework, it's like they assume that there would be a different set of aesthetics attached to it. Like, what is the fashion line or, like, what are the stores where one can, can like, purchase, consume the the, the the footwear for people who want this kind of future or this present. Yes. And I think that that framework in itself is one that makes me feel very uneasy because, as I noted, I grew up in a church, so I'm very familiar with the desire to want to feel like one is on a better path and everyone else is not on the right path and how that can be a high actually it connect it, it creates community and it creates a sense that like the world is compact and manageable because if everyone else just did the set of things that you did then perhaps we would all be okay and this is often predicated on a notion that you are not a part of the systems that you are critical of versus like something like fashion is like i i mean this is something that i really thought about when i was young like you know, do you um, look for cotton farmers that are being compensated at a specific level? Do you then, or do you just like go to people? Because even if they are being paid a quote unquote fair wage, there's like the, there's, there's actual material of it. Or do you then only shop at places that use dead stock, like Reformation? But like, I don't think, I don't want to, I don't want to recommend that. I mean, like, I, I also feel like there's uh, there's so many levels to this because I don't think that there is, I don't think we have it figured out. And I think that this is what I'm most interested in is that, like, we need a critical mass, actually. Absolutely. And, it, and, and I don't mean, like, critical mass, like, everyone stop purchasing at XYZ and only purchase at, uh, you know, ABC. I mean, like... Um, larger, louder conversations as to what does this mean and more kind of um, nuanced and complicated conversations more so than these are like organic cotton sweaters and those are not organic cotton sweaters. Um, Yeah, because I think that the the shame discourse is so easy because the people who shop at places where the merchandise is quote-unquote not fair trade and not organic like are they really making pro-capitalist decisions do you think like is it or are they in an economic situation where perhaps those are the set of choices that are available to them and then is that who you really want to discipline is this anyone's interest to discipline someone else I don't know back and forth I mean I think this is exactly why I guess even as we are talking about the abolition of university studies, it's also about what the university provides, which to me is shifting the frame. So instead of looking at this as a question of choice, which is definitely how my students have been socialized to understand their relationship to capitalism and politics and politics, it's about the choices you make. We are actually asking them to say, Let's take a move back. Let's actually widen the scope and look not at individual choices, but the way that the structure actually limits and actually directs our choices and makes it such that there isn't always an opportunity to make a different decision. And I want to also think through what is our goal? How do we get to that critical mass? And you're absolutely right. We don't get to that critical mass by saying you're not wearing the proper attire. (laughs) And this is what I think the right does so well, is that the right is able to find uh, common ground uh, and not do the kind of infighting that we have on the left about who is more or less in the way that they are in the way that they are uh advocating or displaying their politics well they're looking for converts 
And I think that there's something about conversion and like people who feel very steeped in the critique where they're they're almost suspicious of of it and want to correct people immediately, which sets up a very different affective relationship. But yeah, I, I would really like frameworks that completely mo- remove individual choice. I, I guess that's what I, I've been trying to say, that uh, rather than, oh, if you're critical, you know, of technology and waste, do you, do you have a computer as being like the immediate question and individualizing the person, kind of thinking about um, how like the history of tech firms in the U.S. or the history of the ways in which certain kinds of mining operations um, have always perpetuated colonial ge- geographic routes, and then thinking about that and just I don't I and I and. Honestly, I don't have a I don't have a solution, and I think that's what I'm trying to say is that like after those conversations, what happens? But it is something that we are trying to get to. It doesn't mean that anybody knows what that is yet. But the choice-based personal framework is capitalism, absolutely. Like period, because that's what happened. I think with the Soul Cycle Equinox boycott. So. I just, I was like, A, at the same time, as exhilarating as it is to watch people who um, haven't necessarily been that vocal politically kind of politicize, be politicized in a moment and do things like cancel memberships and speak out. Uh, I read that the first thing that the company did was just remove all of the brands associated with the real estate developers. So they too understand that everything is sort of mimicked around one's illusion of personal choice and then kind of then further hiding that, right? So then like, then it's always the responsibility of the individual consumer to then do all this research around where one's money is being directed. And I can say as two academic researchers who do a lot of research that this is a full-time job, like to ask people to do extensive research on their quote-unquote consumption is a full-time job on top of the jobs that they already have. And also it's just not possible like that. This is what neoliberal capitalism is about, is about kind uh, moments of invisibility, purpose invisibility, and then um, moments where one feels liberated because of the choices, quote unquote, that you've made and your consumption, right? Like you bought this sweater and you didn't buy this other sweater. So you feel good about yourself. Like that's all, that's like the affective relationship. And I think we have to completely move away from that, which is, I understand um, that's the kind of thinking that scares people because it makes you feel like you're not in control and that you are not a distinctive self. But I also think that that's possibly stuff like one of the most primary steps in thinking about what would the end of these systems look like. Absolutely. And that takes me to the university as being a wonderful and also completely terrifying microcosm (laughs) of how this works. Because we have colleagues who we may or may not know who have, you know, Department of Defense contracts who work for national security, et cetera, mm-hmm. and do things that we obviously personally don't agree with and aren't aligned with our politics. But that is the nature of the institution for which we work. Yeah. And so if it was about our individual choices and saying, I'm not going to work at uh, a university that has these kinds of relationships, then we would not have jobs yeah. uh, doing this. And so for me, that again, gets us back to your earlier point, which is we need to ask questions and move away from a choice model that puts the onus on individual people and really asks us to do something else, which is what would it look like for us to have a collective understanding that the system needs to change? And I believe that is what abolitionist university studies is asking us to do. Yeah. How do we uh, collectively think differently about our role in the institution and what collectively can we do to shift our relationship to it and how we teach how we move through it 
is definitely a part of that, but it's not the only piece. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really important to think about how um, when there are stories of one person trying to do it, it's almost it's almost always a sad story because I think it's really hard for people to imagine the end of capitalism. I think there's like Zizek and other people have sort of commented that people can imagine the end of um the world but not the end of capitalism and I think that's pretty spot on but I read a short story recently that really stuck out to me um Lulu from the New Yorker uh, and I'm looking for the name and I'll get it but it was essentially a story of a young girl who goes to a university and becomes incredibly in China and becomes incredibly politicized and uh, remarks on both police brutality but also uh, societal injustice but it's very clear that in her family she's the only one who's doing this her family does not support this and um, ultimately she's incarcerated for at first a very short period of time and then she's incarcerated for for a much longer period of time. And so the story is is both really thinking about the tensions of how how it's really like politicization and gender work very differently, but also it's the thing that you're not supposed to do. It's the thing that I think that, that a lot of perhaps like normative family structures have a hard time grappling with but the other thing that really stuck out to me when I was reading this was that it really is another example of how impossible it is on on one's own and how when one person tries to do it that one person is heavily penalized and that one person seems nuts to one's family members, to one's partner, and and ostracized, and then ultimately incarcerated, which is, I think, like, the story both linking the politicization within the university to this main character's ultimate incarceration made a lot of sense to me, because it was both a back and forth, and uh, kind of taking the, this conversation, and, and really, like, su- summarizing the conversation that we're having as... It's, it cannot be done by one person. So asking one person to do it is actually this, is a tragedy. And if you see it playing out, it's literally a tragedy. Even though one is exhilarated for her, it's also at the same time, it's too much. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to kind of get us to the end yes. of our conversation. But I want to end with a sense of not hope, but a sense of possibility, because I I imagine that is what the conference and these questions of abolition are really trying to get us to do, is to think about possibility and short story being one of the most important ways, like using our imagination to create a new vision for what is possible is so key. Yes. It's only, we are only as radical as our imaginations allow. Right. And the author is Teping Chen, and I will link the story um, to the podcast. Wonderful. But um, yeah, so what were you going to say about possibility? Just that I think, uh, and I think this is um, Grace Lee Boggs. Uh, you know, our radical imaginations have to come first. We have to imagine it to be able to do it. And there's so much emphasis on in the world right now that leaves us without a way to imagine something else. And especially the language of choice definitely limits our imagination Absolutely. because there are a limited... Amount, amount of choices. There are a finite number of choices that people can make. You either buy the thing or you don't. You buy this thing, not that thing. And that totally keeps us away from a vision of something else. What else is possible in the wake of the university? What else is possible in the wake of education uh, as it has been developed in this country? Mm-hmm. And for me, that also gets us back to what is the point of education? Because in a lot of ways, the university and K through 12 education in this country is designed 
to make good capitalists oh, who, yes. make, who make good choices. Good choices. Yes, fashionable choices. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keep up with the, the, the trends. I mean, I think that it's really important to emphasize that there's a, there's, there's a distinction between learning and disciplining. So one can be disciplined into accepting structures. And uh, there's a lot of sort of literary theorists that have analyzed how even the novel, like if you look at the structure of a novel, a building's roman often is an individual's struggle with a societal structure, like a, a norm. So something like marriage or even war. And so it's like them kind of questioning it. So a Jane Austen novel is perfect for this. Like the main character has questions about marriage, but ultimately in conclusion, the main character finds the one individual that is able to appease her or his anxiety. And so there can be some kind of marriage or uh, some kind of resolution and so forth. So these are, there's ways in which you can, you can be disciplined into better choices and there are manuals for this. And that's not always the same thing as um, developing your imagination and, and like learning. So there are education theorists and philosophers like Rancière is someone who pops up into mind who's studied people who have learned things and taught each other things that they don't know. And he usually just, um, he's like, he did a case, a set of case studies in the ignorant schoolmaster where he looks at groups of people who just wanted to learn things, but they didn't necessarily know. Um, so he used like French peasants, parents who were illiterate who wanted to teach their children how to read and would do things like find uh, music scores to try to figure out like where the alphabet might land. And so if it's a song that they're familiar with, they can sort of point you in the way. And I think that this sounds very romantic and kind of a lofty, but he really sort of emphasized, and I think that there's ways to emphasize like learning models that isn't just about kind of forms of hierarchy where one person knows more or everything's tied to an institution, but really a space where people want to facilitate one's growth, which might not always be the space of the institution. Yes, and that of course makes me think of Paulo Freire and just this classic, really important takedown of the banking model of education, yes. which so much, despite our knowledge of this work from the 70s, I believe, mm -hmm. 60s, that we are still kind of doing this thing that we know is not yeah. helpful for our students. And so what can we imagine that once again opens up possibility? Right. And is the university the place? I mean, I think that we're going to try to imagine other systems. Absolutely. Yes. Even if it means the loss of our institutional jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that that's where we might wrap up this current episode, but be tuned for our next one. Um, we will possibly post monthly. That's, that's the aim, but send us emails or comments if you want. Uh, it is in the description box. Thanks. Wonderful. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks Moya. Thank you. Awesome.